Let's turn again to Second Timothy and uh, chapter 2 and verse 19. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. We have three uh, vivid pictures in our text. And we are familiar with each one of these strong words. They're not special theological terms. They're words that everyone in Aberystwyth is familiar with. But they're taken up by the uh, writers of the Bible to show us something of the love of God. And to show us something of what God requires. If you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in baptism... They're all very relevant to our lives and to this service then tonight. They're common words, but distinctive words. The words are foundation, seal, and inscription. You see, they're there in this 19th verse before us. So, let's go into the verse by those three words. Firstly, those who are on God's foundation stand firm. They stand. They're firm. An uncle of mine was a minister in a mining village three miles south of Merthyr in Abavan. The scene of a terrible disaster which took place in October 1966, in which 144 people were killed, 120 of them, children under the age of 11. They lost their lives in a sliding coal tip, which came with increasing power and wiped out a school, which had just begun a morning session. I'd often been to Abervan. My grandfather lived there. My father was very diligent in visiting him every couple of weeks, and we all went on the train. There were cracks in the manse where my uncle, the minister, lived. There were cracks in the walls. And many of the doors, they wouldn't close properly. And you couldn't open some, many of the windows. The cause of this, which resulted finally in the manse being demolished, was the subsidence underneath the whole village from the warren of mine workings that were there. The foundation of the house was undermined and steadily destroyed, and there was no hope then. If the foundations are destroyed, there's no hope for the building. The Roman Catholic Church here, it's a building very similar to our own in in size. Um, St. Winifred's in Queen's Road, it's no longer usable. And for the same reason, it's there um, on the, the shingle and sand of that hole of Queen's Road. And uh, it's got subsidence, and so it's to be demolished. There's a fight to keep it open. Of course, our friends there are upset about it. The Lord Jesus, on the, the concluding words of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he tells a lovely parable that we all know, and the children sing it, um, about a man, one man in particular, who uh, um, builds his house on, on the rock. There's another man, and, uh, well, he has no longer started building his house, but he's, he's completed it. And he's sitting on a chair on his porch and he's looking at his neighbor. And his neighbor is still going down and down for the bedrock, for the foundation. And we hear from the rest of the narrative that Jesus told that this was a floodplain. And this man wanted to be sure 
And so he went down until he got the rock and he anchored the house then onto the bedrock. And then the mother of all storms came, torrents of rain and flooding. It came down. And uh, Jesus tells it like this. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. But he'd anchored it on the rock. And he stood firm. The water went around it, but it couldn't budge it. Whereas the man whose house had gone up so quickly, he saw that house washed away just as quickly. Now, why did our Lord tell that story? Well, you see, uh, he'd been preaching the greatest sermon that this world has ever heard or ever will hear. And he was describing the life that is pleasing to God, the life that God blesses, the life in which God is present underneath this life are the everlasting arms. And God is above and alongside and before and after and underneath and every preposition in relation to this life. And then he says, and such a life will survive no matter the storms that are hurled against it. Now, our Lord never promises that if you become a Christian, you won't have storms. He never says that anywhere in the Bible. In fact, we know that there are special storms that come to us from following the Lord Jesus Christ and being faithful to him and and declaring his word. Our Lord, in fact, makes the dangers spectacularly clear. He warns of the waves of persecution that are going to come. We know of the waves of historical research, and the waves of philosophical speculation, and the waves of scientific pretension, and all these waves will beat and will beat continually and constantly on this great foundation the teaching and the claims of Jesus Christ. But our Lord was absolutely confident that every human life that had the Lord Jesus Christ as a teacher and uh, as a protector and as uh, an atoner, as a great high priest, if you built your life on that, you would be safe he said, you would stand. He was utterly convinced of it. He had unshakable confidence of the relevance of his word to every human life. We have something relevant to say to every student at the university, every boy and girl in school, every one of our neighbors, all the people we meet in Providence during the day. We have good news to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And such a life built on the Savior was then, the Savior says in that parable, invulnerable to every kind of assault, every kind of research, every kind of investigation, all that the hostile media can throw against it and can say it's out of date and uh, it's irrelevant for us today. Everyone who builds their lives on Jesus Christ, everyone won't fall into hell. A husband and wife who come here and make their vows together here. If that marriage, if that home is built on Jesus Christ, it will survive. And Paul, in the passage before us, then is following our Lord. And Paul says these words in verse 19... God's solid foundation stands firm. Those five words, you can write them on a card. You can stick them with a magnet on your refrigerator. You can put them on a card in front of your monitor. You can have it uh, at the side of your bed. God's solid foundation stands firm. And so we're being asked uh, today about our foundation. What are we building our lives upon?
Are we building our lives on the teaching and the example and the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Here is 20th, 21st century literature with all its boasted claims about being so relevant, contemporary, right up to date. There are no words that are remotely comparable in their enduring value to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the claims that he made, and the life that was enfleshed by him. Words on which you can build your life and build your eternity. The God who, in creation, spoke and uh, laid the foundation of the heavens and the earth, separated the land from the seas and so on, he has also laid a a moral and a spiritual foundation on which uh, creatures that are made in his image and in his likeness then, that they can build their lives too. And he's done this by sending prophets in the world, but in these last days, his own son, who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, he has come. And he's told us, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Before Abram was, I am. I'm the resurrection and the life. And he makes these claims and backs them by his life. Now, some of you may know the Greek word for foundation. It is the word phamelios. And some of you know it because you know of a journal that's uh, dedicated then to studying the Bible. And that is its name. Its name is Thamelios, foundation. Now, our word foundation is used in a double sense, isn't it? You, you're aware of this. Um, it's the basis on which a building is set up and erected. That's one of the uses of the word foundation. And then it is used also of an association, uh, a society, a college, a city which was founded by someone. On the student quiz program, a university challenge, then the, the uh, compare, he will tell you, for example, that King's College, Cambridge, is a foundation of Henry VI. He is the initiative and uh, he is the decision and he is the funding that accomplished the design and the erection and the sustenance of this building. So we have two uses of foundation in the English language, and it is identical. Thamelios in the Greek also means the same thing. It is uh, the the concrete foundation, the stone bedrock foundation of a building, and it is also then uh, an association, a city, a college, which has been founded by a great general. So here is Ephesus, and the pastor of the church, just one church, one people of God, And they meet under their pastor, Timothy. And he's laying a foundation there in Ephesus. And it would underlay anyone in the community who came and confessed that Jesus Christ was Lord. And they would say, come, come and stand on this foundation with us. People who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he was. He was the Son of God incarnate. He was the virgin born holy, harmless, undefiled man who uh, was born under the law and kept the law and adorned it and loved God with all his heart and loved his neighbor as himself. And he came into the world to become the Lamb of God, to make atonement, to propitiate the, the holy wrath of God which is revealed from heaven against all that is mean and ugly and cruel. And God is displeased with that all. And we are the mean ones. 
we sinners. And God's anger towards us has been appeased because his son has become then the substitute, the Lamb of God, who in our place, in our stead, has borne our condemnation in his own body as he hangs there on the cross, under the anathema, under the wrath of Almighty God. And then he then says to us, come then to me, come, and I can give you rest. Rest from your troubles and your burdens and your guilt and your shame. You come to me, because I can offer you rest, he says. So the foundation is Jesus Christ. The foundation for your life, for what you're to believe and how you are to live and what you're to do on Mondays and Tuesdays. Not just on Sunday nights in a place of worship. Build your life on him and and you'll be safe. Many storms. Storms then of courtship and broken hearts and marriage. And uh, bringing children into the world and being with them in their illnesses. And then yourself feeling frail as the years go by. The pressures in work and old age. Build that whole life. Jesus says, build it on him. And it's a secure foundation. It, it, it stands firm, such a life. And believers are exhorted then to be baptized. To show that this Lord now is the foundation of their living. And they exhort one another. And they encourage one another, go on then, go on, we're praying for you. We know it's tough at the present time, but we're remembering you and we will remember you always. Don't move from that foundation, they say. Don't leave it. And that came uh, about in, in a tested way in Ephesus when two men turned up to hold some meetings. And their names were... Hymenius and Philetus. And they had left the foundation. They had imbibed uh, Greek thinking and Greek values instead of biblical values. And so they said, uh, uh, when Jesus spoke about the resurrection, he was just meaning a symbol of life that goes on and on. And so young Christians then saw the notices for um, special meetings for Hymenaeus and Philetus, and, uh, and uh, they said, oh, they're, they're, they're special evangelists and Bible teachers coming to town. We want to go and hear them. No, no. Oh, you mustn't. You mustn't go and hear them. Oh, you've got to be very careful with them. Why not then? Well, they've left the foundation. They're not building on the foundation any longer. They've wandered away from the truth. Verse 17 and verse 18, they say that the resurrection has already taken place. And they destroy the faith of some church members. You mustn't go there. They're not teaching that Jesus rose from the dead. No, they're not. How can anyone be a Christian and deny that fact? How can someone talk about uh, conjuring with bones? As a man did famously some years ago to describe the resurrection. No, no, we can't have that. They, They were astonished. And so through the fellowship of Christians who are all standing firm on Jesus Christ, that for us he can say nothing wrong. And we we believe and we implement in our lives what the Saviour said and what the Saviour did. There's no other foundation that, that you can build on. Because our, our Saviour, um, he knew about this century as much as the first century. And he knew about Abram as much as the first century. And he knows how long the world will go on until it ends. And he then, at the right hand of God, will speak for us. And he'll welcome us and he's watching us and he's strengthening us day by day. Well, what are you building your life on? You're going to say no to this foundation that I'm commending to you? Well, well, 
what are you going to build on? None of your friends go to church, you say. Well, you, you're going to build on that wobbly foundation that uh, you want to go where the majority goes? You have some vague idea about evolution, but you really have never studied it. It's just one word for you. Are you going to build your life on vagueness? You see the television weather forecast and you see the isobars close together and the heavy rain and the flooding and the winds up to 90 miles an hour. And uh, Do you pay attention? Do you see that it's concentrating on Aberystwyth? You say, well, I better be careful. I'm not going to put any washing out on the line today then with this weather. And you see you're in a floodplain. We are in the eye of the storm. And you take notice of it. Our Lord Jesus says there are storms that are going to face every one of us. Storms of sickness and loss and heartache and death and loneliness. And they are utterly unavoidable. But there's a foundation. And if you live and breathe and hold firm and aren't buffeted but stay on that foundation, the teaching of Jesus... You'll be safe. It is real. This foundation is real. It is strong. I bear witness to you that I meant every word that I sung to you tonight. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So that's the first word. The first word is foundation. And then the second word is seal. Those who are on God's foundation are sealed. A seal, you know, is a special mark that proves the ownership, the genuineness of something. The deeds of our house then, which is a hundred years old, then they have a blob of sealing wax which is spread out at the, at the bottom of uh, one of the pages. And uh, it has been indented with a seal. It is a mark that uh, that document is genuine. And the house really does belong to us. My name and the seal is there. On those deeds. And so I might walk down Trinity Road and uh, I might bump into a man on the pavement who's standing outside my house and he says, uh, this is my house, you know. And I say to him, oh yes, do you have the deeds? Do they have your name on them? Are they signed and sealed? And he's nothing to say. And he goes away speechless. A king will wear a, a large ring, a signet ring, a ring that signs and a new uh, Bill will come from Parliament and a new law and uh, his secretary will pour some warm wax at the bottom of it and he will seal it with his signet ring. He'll put his sign on it. This is now the law of the land. Again, uh, we know that there'd be a sack of saffron and uh, the seal would confirm that this was genuine and it was this year's crop and it was saying, if the seal is broken, then don't you purchase this sack. The seal could be a brand mark. It could be a trademark. The most uh, famous of Greek doctors was a man called Galen, who lived just before the apostles. And he um, then commends an eye ointment. And he urges his readers, look for the seal on the little bottle. Make sure that it's the real thing. There are a lot of counterfeits about, he says, but this is the ointment to get if you have bloodshot eyes. We think of hallmark signs on silver goods. There are so many uh, interesting programs about antiques. And we've learned now, we see the greatly enlarged finger of a man who is pointing to customers and he is pointing to the hallmarks that are there. 
And that guarantees that, uh, that this cruet, this vase, this ornament is really made of genuine silver. And they say, the hallmarks say, where it was made and when it was made and who made it. It's a kind of seal. So Paul is speaking to Timothy and he says, no, every Christian has a foundation on which he is building his life. The foundation has been given to him, has been provided for him by God. And then he says, and every one of those Christians that's standing on this foundation has been sealed by God as someone who belongs to God. They are his. He's put his mark of ownership on every one of them. The youngest of them, the newest of them, the littlest of them, the worst of them. The holy and the just God is not ashamed to do this. He says to cursing Peter, I prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. He says to him, I won't call you servant any longer. I'll call you my friend. He puts his seal of friendship. On Peter. Now what is the seal? Well I will tell you what the seal is. The seal is God the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead. Not an experience. Created by the Spirit in our affections. An experience of joy unspeakable and full of glory. There are such experiences that Christians know. But the Spirit himself is the seal. The Spirit living in us, the Spirit working in us, the Spirit secretly and quietly and unstoppably. He is there in the lives of every single Christian. And he's there and he's uh, confirming that they belong to God and that they have this foundation on which they are building their lives. I want to show you this very clearly in the New Testament. Paul writes, for example, to the entire congregation of the Ephesian church. He speaks to everybody, everybody in that congregation. And he says to them all who trusted in Jesus Christ now, and they're standing on God's solid foundation, he says in Ephesians 1.13, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.30. Talks to the whole... He doesn't talk to a little special group who sit on the side pews near the pulpit. And these are the sealed ones. He speaks to all the congregation. To the new Christians and the little old ladies there. And the deacons and uh, the Christian workers. And he says this privilege then is is a privilege God has given to every one of us. We are standing on the foundation that Jesus Christ is and we have had the seal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God has given to you God as a confirmation that you are God's. God has given to you God. As a confirmation that you are God's. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. So you treasure the Holy Spirit that you have. He's there in in your heart and, and life. You have a Savior, an advocate above at the right hand of God, and then you have an advocate below. You have an inward, internal witness and testimony. Of the Holy Spirit. And so. He is your seal. Treat him with respect. Treat him with. Thanksgiving. And love. You know if you have. uh, Signed and sealed documents. That are the trustees. Of the house you own. The most valuable thing. that, That you own is your house. You don't keep. Those documents with the chip paper that you brought from the chip shop 
with last week's TV Times and uh, last week's Cambrian News and the other papers that you, you're going to throw out, do you? How grievous that would be, how foolish, how negligent that would be. You lose your deeds, oh, what trouble you are in then. You keep them safe. You keep the seal safe. So Paul tells the home congregation, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30. You were sealed. You were sealed. You, 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 you Christians. You were sealed. The Holy Spirit is your seal. You think of it. Here's King David. King David, the, the bittersweet singer of Israel and Judah. Took another man's wife. And he arranged for that man to be killed. God had put his seal. The Holy Spirit. On that man. David's great fear when he prays Psalm 51 of repentance. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He says. The Corinthian church member. Whose father then was widowed and he'd married a much younger woman around the same age as his son. His son had an affair. This Christian, this church member, this sealed Christian, he had an affair with this man who was married to his father. Think of it. Think of it. It's Mary Magdalene. And she's just dominated her life by evil influences, evil spirits. God acknowledges this woman when she looks to Jesus and puts her, her trust in Jesus Christ. She's mine, God says. She's mine. Holy Spirit, go to her. Holy Spirit, live in her tortured mind. and Clean her up inwardly. Wash her, cleanse her inwardly. Give her strength. Help her, he says. Affect every part of her, because she's going to be mine. Like that restored man in the church in Corinth. Like David, we'll see him in glory, won't we, one day. You understand the wonder of, of what God has done for us? The extraordinary privilege that God has given us. He's given us a foundation, and that's great. But he's given us a seal, too. If I uh, need to buy a, a plastic ballpoint pen, I don't expect it to be sealed with red wax and bear the signature of uh, Mr. Byro and uh, that there's attached to it uh, an eight-page document in vellum which confirms that I'm the owner. It's, it's a trivial thing that we discard. The house where you live, where you bring children into the world, the house where you care and show hospitality and see nurture and, and see your children grow. There should be some serious accompaniment of ownership. And there are in the deeds, the sealed deeds, when God comes to us. He is going to change us into the image of Jesus Christ. We're going to be with him in a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to live as long as God. We're going to be made like Christ. And that work of uh, redemption, it, it, it begins here in this world. It begins when you're a little girl who looked to Jesus and you ask him to become your savior. He's right. Oh, he hears this is where you stand now. This tells us where we stand. And then he seals us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He comes and he lives in our lives. He sends his spirit into the lives of rotters. 
the vomit of this world, the offscouring of all flesh, the germ-laden children of their father, the devil. They shall be mine, God says. He sees us. Nothing to commend ourselves. Holy Spirit comes like the dove. He settles on Jesus at his baptism. He comes. And he comes as the seal in our lives that we are his. And he changes us. I told you the story of the little girl who uh, saw the roses that were there in the vase and uh, uh, they were buds. She longed for them to be opened, so she one day started to pull the, pull the green coverings away and then the, uh, the petals themselves, as they were tightly bound together, and she opened them. She wanted them to be a lovely, fragrant, open rose. And she completely destroyed that rose, that rosebud, as she attempted to do that. And she cried when her mother came in. She said, look, I've destroyed it. And her mother said, you see, it has to open from the inside. And our lives, open to the influence of God, open to his grace, open to his fellowship. The Holy Spirit has to come into the dispositional complex, into our hearts, the real you, and change you then from within. He comes as the seal of God to you. And then there's a third word, the last word of our text very briefly. And it's the word inscription. That those who are on God's foundation are inscribed. You see inscriptions, don't you? There are one or two on some of the buildings in Aberystwyth in London. They are round blue discs and you or I catches them and you uh, hope you know the people whose uh, names are there and what they were, whether they were artists or scientists or dramatists or actors and they lived there a certain number of years. And uh, they are inscribed as having lived in that place we put uh, inscriptions, don't we, on, uh, on the tombs, the tombstones. We put their name and um, their occupation and uh, the date of their birth and the date of their death. And then we put some inscription. I, I want this inscription on my tombstone. God created me. Sin ruined me. Grace restored me. Above the dust that is there, waiting for the day of resurrection, the day of redemption, I want that inscription, my indebtedness to the grace of God. But the invisible inscription is uh, not something that uh, we have formulated. It's not a tattoo that we write on uh, a prominent part of our bodies. God chooses this inscription. And it doesn't describe then our achievements. It is God who puts this inscription on every single Christian that he's put on the solid foundation and he is sealed with the Holy Spirit and he says two things two divinely chosen things he inscribes them if you've uh, read the latter chapters of Exodus I'm going through my Bible readings now and that's where they've taken me uh, in February, in January it's uh, Genesis and February it's uh, Exodus, and I've been reading about the precious stones that were there on the breastplate and on the turban of the high priests and how they were inscribed. The diamonds themselves were inscribed with the names of the tribes and so on. God has chosen two inscriptions that every Christian has. You are bearing them. 
You didn't know that while you were bearing them. That's how God sees you. The first inscription is this. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows. It's a word of great comfort. It's a word of assurance. Now, when we read about God knowing those that are his, it's not simply a reference to his omniscience. That God knows everything about us. Well, that's true. If we took the wings of the morning and flew to the uttermost parts of the seas, then we would meet God, a God who knows us, who knew us when he knitted us together in our mother's womb. That God who has kept us until now, God knows all about us. God knows all the children of the world, black and yellow, red and white. They are precious in his sight. That's not the comfort of this knowledge. Very often in the Bible, the idea of knowing is far more affectionate than intellectual. For God, to know is to love. For example, in Amos, we read God saying, You only have I known of all the nations of the earth. Well, of course, he knew about the Romans and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Moabites and the Perizzites and the Egyptians and the Celts. God knows about them all. God knows about the sparrow that falls, the pheasant I hit as it ran out as I was driving in North Wales a couple of weeks ago. And, oh, I hated hitting that pheasant. It wasn't a surprise to God that that happened. God knows is saying God loves. God loves his people. On the day of judgment he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, he's not saying I was ignorant of you. He knew. He knew them. He knew the vile things that they had done. He knew their contempt for him. He knew them. But he didn't love them. And that's why he condemns them. Because of their obstinacy towards him. You remember we are told in Genesis that Adam knew his wife Eve. Well, that wasn't just... He knew she was five foot two with eyes of blue. He knew her passionately. He knew her lovingly. He knew her intimately. It's the message of Hosea. It's the, it's the message of Ephesians 5. Christ loves the church and he gives himself. For, oh, he loves. He lays down his life for his people. They are... So precious to him. You, you read back all the commitment, all the jealousy of a man for his wife that no one else should take that affection that she shows to him away from him. God in love with his people. God going to Calvary because he loves his people. He takes them as his bride. It's a love that is prodigal. It's a love that is emotional, a love that is passionate. God gives his own son and doesn't spare him. God deeply in love with his people. God loves those who are his. I want every Christian to know this. as the sort of fundamental truth that we all should know. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I have loved you with an everlasting love, God says. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And he ascribes this with a diamond pen on the tablets of our hearts in marks of indelible grace. He says, I know you. I love you. You are mine forever and never. I'm never going to stop loving you, he says. And the wonder of that, God loves me. Even me, God loves. And when I see that and when I have the witness of the Holy Spirit to that reality in my heart, then I respond in wonder and in praise and doxology. Oh, love that will not let me go. So that's the first inscription that God writes on every one of you here who are Christians. I know you. I know you. The Lord knows those who are his. And then, lastly then, there's the contrast, the second inscription. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. 
Well, how different that is. Isn't there the marvelous balance there? The scales on which grace and law of promise and responsibility are given to us in, in the Bible. The Lord knows them that are his. Yes, he loves them. But that love is secret and it's known in our hearts alone. Many will claim that they are the Lord's. But the judge will call them evildoers in that great day. So there is a balancing in Scripture. The perspective changes. Let everyone who says, God loves me, prove it by a total change of life. Turn from your wickedness. If God really loves you, we can't see your heart. Can't take it out and look at it and see if there's an inscription there saying, I have sealed you. Can't see that. Can't see, um, I know you, you are mine, I love you. Can't see it, it's in your heart. But we can see your life, how you're living. And wickedness then, it's utterly unattractive to you. You turn your back, you scorn it, you despise it. The meanness and the ugliness of it all. You, you turn from it. And that inscription then is on our hearts. That bias. That new energy. To turn from evil. And ah, no more and more and more of the love of God. Its height, its depth, its breadth, its length. It passes knowledge. And so grace tells us God loves us. And the grace of law reminds us then that there are duties if you say you're a Christian. Well, we have expectations of you. God has demands of you. Not to be perfect, though you, you long to be perfect if you're a Christian. But that you are new. A new desire. New ambitions. New joys. If you say tonight that you're a Christian, if you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you've been baptized, then you have an obligation to turn away from wickedness. You, you must. You see the word must is there. You must turn from wickedness. You say, well, my conscience tells me that it's, it's all right. It's okay what I'm doing. And I always let my conscience be my guide. But uh, a conscience is no safe guide to what's right and wrong. The conscience of the ISIS killer who beheads and burns alive his captives. And he thinks he's pleasing God in doing that. Jesus Christ. He was crucified in conscience by the chief priests there and the Sanhedrin. They did it. Is your conscience enlightened? Are you here on Sundays? Are you listening to the word of God? Are you reading it? Are you praying that God will teach you and strengthen you to understand what's right and, and good? You, you say to me, but my sins are not like other people's sins. My wickednesses are not like other people's wickednesses. They're beautiful. Oh, we do things and, you know, we don't feel it's wrong what we do. And no one's harmed by it. But if God says in his word, thou shalt not, then that's enough. I please him. I do his will. Paul is pleading here for a change of life then. You confess the name of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is doing. You told the people that Jesus Christ is your Lord. That he's loved you and given himself for you. That he became the Lamb of God for you. That he allowed great nails to be hammered through his hands and feet. Because he loved you and he wanted to save you from your sin. and To take you to heaven. He bought eternal life for you. 
He entered the anathema of God for you. He opened heaven for you. He obtained forgiveness and mercy for all you've done. All this he's done, he's given you a new heart. He's given you saving faith. He's given you the grace of perseverance in his providence. He's brought you on a Sunday night to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see it. What does he ask from you in return for all his kindness and goodness to you? What great price must you pay that you may get to heaven and be with him forever and ever? Turn away from wickedness. That's what he says. That's what he says. I mean, there should be no other reason for doing that than just wickedness is heinous, uh, stain, stench, dark, profitless, hurting. Let's turn away from it because of that. How much more if we know the energy that's been given to us to turn from it has been bought by a Savior who died for us. Isaac Watts saw it and he says, love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. And that's what you must do. The wonderful love of God constrained him to turn from wickedness and to serve the Lord in newness of life. Not not a, a blameless life. Ah, oh, that we could all live blameless lives. But uh, lives that are new. Three things tonight I've told you. I've told you about a foundation for you to build on. I've told you about a seal that is the Holy Spirit that is inward. And I've told you about an inscription God makes. He writes it on your heart. If you're a believer tonight, he writes, I know you are. I know you're mine. I know I love you. I want you to know that too. And I want you to turn away from wickedness. Well, are you a Christian? By these criteria, are you a Christian? They're here in the book. Are you a Christian? And if not, well, you must begin to ask God. Make me a real Christian then. Um, oh, change me. Turn me. Help me. And say it and say it again and again until you know that he's answered you. And that this Savior is your Savior forever. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us now, we pray. Help us to see it and understand it. Thank you for the foundation we stand on and the seal which you have placed within us, the Spirit of God. Thank you for the inscription that's here now. Oh, thank you, Heavenly Father, that you love us. Though so weak and so poor. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you give us strength to turn from wickedness to serve you. May everybody, every single person in this congregation tonight... May they all know these blessings of full and free salvation through Jesus our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.